0: You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing, positive impact on their city and the world.
1: So you can be called out on that. But if, you, if, if the optimism is conditional, courageous and intelligent, then I think that's the most powerful means we have for creating change.
0: With a degree of intentionality, I've stayed away from talking about science and technology on this podcast. There are a few reasons for this. One is my own background in tech. Others are the amount of tech discussion that already exists and the fact that so much tech disruption is not subtle, is about benefiting the chosen few, and is not scrutinized or directed at connecting us with each other and our planet. I first came across this week's guest listening to him talk about the future of clean energy. Since then, I've enjoyed reading his Future Crunch newsletter as a source of inspiration about all the good things that are happening out there, things not usually reported on, as well as the amazing tech things happening, things that are going to radically change the way I live. What I like most about his approach is that it is all about working out how can the massive amounts of tech change we see be harnessed for good so that those in need get their needs met, so that our planet will survive and thrive, and how, through conditional optimism, to galvanise people for action around this quest. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Gus Harvey about the subtle disruption conditional, courageous and intelligent optimism. Hello Gus, good to Hi, be um, here with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, for, thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Do you want to start by describing
1: where we are? Well, we're sitting on a park bench in Prince's Park in Melbourne's inner north and we're watching someone throw a ball uh, for her dog <laughs> it looks like he's having a great time. There is <laughs> is there any
0: particular reason why you chose for us to chat here?
1: Uh, so, Princess Park is, I mean, the reason I chose this is because I, my first year that I moved to Melbourne I spent a lot of time running around here, uh, and it was during, it was my final year of doing my PhD so I remember doing a lot of running around here thinking about stuff uh, but my most abiding memory is actually running running around the park and going I can't wait till I finish this bloody PhD (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I think when you when you uh, suggested that we should meet somewhere that kind of meant something to me I thought uh, this would be a good place because it it was so much a part of my life it was such a it was such a big part of what I was doing then my sort of daily runs which kind of kept me sane but I also remember this really strong feeling of thinking it would never be over and that was now three or four years ago Yeah. and so much has happened since then and it was just interesting reflecting back on that, thinking oh, okay, it is finally over um, and a lot of good stuff has happened Yeah. but back then it didn't feel like it was ever going to end yeah. yeah what did you study, what was your PhD in? I did a, so my PhD was in political economy uh, and I was doing a PhD at the London School of Economics. And that was, I started that in 2009 and moved to Australia at the beginning of 2012 and spent my final year writing the PhD here in Melbourne, which was pretty challenging. Uh, I, I kind of uprooted and left everything that I knew behind. I was living in London, um, and sort of left behind all my support networks, and my supervisor, and my friends, and, and everyone I knew, and, and moved out here. And so it was a, it was, it was a pretty, it was a really liberating experience, but it was also a really isolating experience at the same time. And uh, <clears throat> anyone who who's ever written a big project or done a Done a, you know, written a book or done a PhD or made a movie or documentary knows that there's that sort of final three to six months when it's just everything else disappears and it becomes all about the project yeah. uh, and those times can be pretty weird go to strange places <laughs> you can go to some pretty strange places you kind of deteriorate as a human being <laughs> but, um, and that's what happened to me uh, and so Prince's Park is kind of tied up with those people
0: yeah yeah Um, just on that before we talk about other stuff I have this thing in my head about projects that are a bit like GPS's, or you know a bit like navigating anywhere, you know when you the first kilometre is just a whole lot of twisting and turning, it can take a lot of time but then if you're on a three hour journey you know, the two and a half hours in the middle, or two hours in the middle are just like smooth sailing, until you get to that last half hour at the end as well, which is a lot of fiddly stuff and a lot of time consuming stuff and I feel like a lot of projects are like that this needs mm. a lot of momentum at the start mm. often there's a big stretch where it's reasonably smooth sailing and then just before the deadline hits or hits the end of it you bring it all together there's a lot of shit to be done to make it all happen and get to that finish
1: point yeah I love that analogy I mean that's spot on the other the other thing that, that makes me think of is the return journey is always just really easy <laughs> yeah because now you've already done it once and so you know the way backwards But often, I suppose, in the in the kind of creative industries, we never make the same journey twice. Yeah, that's right. You don't you don't often get to come back and make the return journey or do the same journey again.
0: Yeah, and I guess it wouldn't be that interesting, fulfilling (laughs) to do that either.
1: It'd be a lot easier. (laughs) It'd be easier. That's right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what? Um. So you. It was in political economy. I've got a. I mean, I. But there was one subject at uni I studied, which was the, um, I did an IT degree, undergrad, But I did this one subject called the Economics of Social Issues, which just, it blew my mind. Like, I'd never really, which was a lot about political economy, and I'd never really thought about, I didn't know that it was a whole different way of thinking about economies until that point, and it's actually the subject that I got the worst mark in at uni, but it's the subject that had the most profound impact on Mm. my life as well. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about, what political political economy is, and you know what your
1: what your niche was. Sure. The the best the political economy at its core is really uh, it's a conversation about which one of two forces in our life dominates more, um, and those two forces are the market and the state. Uh, and the market is all about distribution and. Um, you know, mechanisms for distributing wealth. Uh, it's, it's about ways of allocating things efficiently. And then the state is all about governance, how we manage ourselves, the rules, the institutions, the, um, the rules written and unwritten about the way that society is governed. And political economy is the study of where those two things kind of collide. Yeah. Uh, and so your perspective, you have different schools of thought in political economy, and those schools of thought really... I mean, it's all very theoretical, and there's, there's a lot of a lot of research about it. But ultimately, the question boils down to which one of those two forces you think is more powerful, and depending on that, and the other corollary of that is which one of those two forces you think society needs more of in order to be better. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that that idea runs through so many of modern, day, so much of modern day politics, so much of our conversations about. You know how we, what's fair and what's not, um, and is becoming, you know, is always relevant. Like you look at all the questions these days about inequality or the rise of demagogues in Europe and the U.S. Um, and and Australia actually populist sort of politicians and uprisings there. Yeah. So I loved studying political economy because that just gave me a roadmap for so many issues uh, that are that are affecting us in our everyday lives. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that was really great about studying political economy was that it kind of gives you it gives you the language to talk about these things, but it also means that you it, it means that I have a much better understanding of uh, of what of where we've come from, like why we have the conversations about politics and economics that we do today. And probably one of the biggest learnings that I've had in the last three or four years is that the conversations that we have about the way that we manage ourselves today are just hopelessly outdated. In effect, we're still having conversations about the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution is when that whole left versus right political spectrum was formed. And left versus right politics is actually really simply a conversation about who owns the output of the Industrial Revolution. Is it the workers who are in the factory or is it the owners of the factory? And that conversation is, that's what's still going on today. But it's such a narrow and small conversation in a world where we're going through, you know, a a revolution that puts the industrial revolution, it it makes it look look minor in comparison. So we're having this really narrow band of conversation about who owns the output. And yet the issues that we face are just so much broader than that. And so I think that political economy was really great in understanding. That that's where we've come from. But that our ways of talking about politics are no longer fit for purpose. And
0: um, where did that lead in its first step after you finished studying that? Uh, you know, that knowledge and that grounding. Where did you take that straight after you finished?
1: Um, so I, the, the topic that I, I was really interested in, environmental. Um, environmental sciences and, and I got really interested in climate change and issues of equity and so I was sort of doing political economy but applied to environmental topics yeah. and, um, and then when I finished my PhD I was here in Australia and I I ended up um, I, ended, I, I needed to look for work I needed, I needed to find a job uh, and it, I ended up being unemployed for 18 months Wow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which uh If anyone's been unemployed, you'll know that that's a really long time to be unemployed. (laughs) And that wasn't unemployed by choice, that was me furiously looking for a job for that entire stretch of 18 months. And it was just, it was one of the most difficult things I have ever been through. Particularly in a new city. Oh, I mean, it was sort of like a perfect storm. Um, I had just finished my PhD, I didn't have any contacts, I didn't have any networks, I didn't even know where to start um, I was applying for jobs online and, and various places but obviously that's, off, that's a really inefficient way of doing it um, and I was also looking for work in the environmental sector and this was the beginning of 2013 so at about that time we knew that there was going to be a change of government in Australia and we knew that the new government that was coming in, um, environmental groups knew that the new government that was coming in didn't like the environment very much <laughs> so, so a lot of people who worked in the environmental sector were kind of shutting up shop, battening down the hatches, they weren't expanding, they were tightening up, and so they weren't really employed anymore. Yeah. Uh, but probably the most important factor was that I had spent 10 years on and off, revolving in and out and around academia. And that was a really good way to learn a lot about a lot of different things. But I didn't have the language to be able to get myself employed. So if I got an interview with someone, I would go and sit down with them and they would say, they would say something and then they would say, well, you know, what's your value proposition? And I would say, my what?" <laughs> i would never heard of these things before. So I could tell them about lots of interesting things, but I was really, you know, I find it really difficult to articulate why they should employ me. Um... And what happened over the over the course of those 18 months is that I it just took a huge toll on my mental health. Um, by the end of it, I was you know I was really anxious. I was pretty depressed, um, finding it really difficult to motivate myself, um, and kind of had a bit of a I suppose like a crisis really. Um, in that everything that I'd done up to that point in my life, I was about 30 years old, um, everything I'd done I. I nailed it. Like I'd, I'd really succeeded. So I was always good at school. I was great at university. I was, I was really successful in academia. Sort of um, was at you know, played at a lot of high levels and met a lot of interesting people. And my career was sort of really taking off there. And then when I left that world to try find a job in um, outside academia, um, that was the first time that I've ever really massively failed. And it was devastating I'd never really gone through that experience before and it, and I, and it sort of made me go well I, I don't even know who am I I think so much of my self identity had been wrapped up in this idea that I was good at things and that I was smart in things um, and being forced to come face to face with the realisation that that's not actually the case meant that I had to do some serious thinking about who I was and, and what I believed and, and what I thought mattered in the world and uh, it was just—it was just really hard. It also, suck being broke. Say that again. It was also—it also just really sucked being broke. Yeah, god, yeah. Yeah, especially after four years of a PhD. How <laughs> did you survive? I um—I was a barman. Yeah. I um, did odd jobs for people. Um, I would do a bit of research work here and there. Um, just kind of really got by and lived super frugally. Yeah. I really my lifestyle was really free and their bones. do you think that
0: like well, I guess we'll get into what happened after that crisis but do you think that you'd be doing what you're doing now if you didn't have that crisis well, oh like, no way that? no way
1: I mean it's such a cliche right that you have to <laughs> that is. your biggest crisis is also your biggest like, learning opportunity but it's so true oh, I, I mean, agree people say it for a reason and I'm sure that I'm sure that everyone, who, I'm sure everyone out there has got a similar story where they've had an experience in their life that was unexpected it caused some kind of reckoning or some kind of crisis and then it forced them to change direction or, or have a think about who they really were Yeah, and I think there's something so there's something so human in that and yet we're so afraid of going through those crises and we're so desperate to avoid them. <laughs> totally. And we, we concoct all these elaborate plans and these safety mechanisms and these these the things to, to stop us from falling into those traps. And yet they are our biggest learning opportunities. <laughs> That's right. It's just... Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's great. It's easy to say those things now. But back then, people would say these things to me and it, it came as absolutely no comfort. Yeah. When you're in the thing... Nothing can comfort you. Nothing can make you feel better. It's just... Yeah, It's you just got to get through it's it. It's just shit. It's just yeah. shit. Yeah,
0: I mean, a similar thing for me. Two, two years ago, I had a massive crisis. But it, and it was the hardest. It's been the hardest sort of 18 months of my life, but also the best as well, coming out of it. Like you saying. and a little mantra I kept telling myself was, you know, don't waste a good crisis. Like, let's, <laughs> let's really... Let's just, all that shit that's just been building up, let's just try and cut to it right now and get, do the deep, deep surgery right now.
1: Yeah, but it is, it's, there's no, there's no way through it. You you can't go around it, you have to go through it. Um, And I think this applies to, this this is, you know, to have a crisis, to have a, um, an experience that, an experience of loss or an experience of, depression or an experience of um, or a crisis of faith, that is something that is so, like I said earlier, that's so deeply human and, and you know there's there's a bunch of interesting social research coming out now that, that talks about how those, you know the more we sort of drop into those spaces the easier that makes it um, for us to relate to other people <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's an even sort of more radical school of thought and a lot of this kind of comes out of um, Catholicism and, and um, and, and a bunch of other religious um, traditions as well, which says that if you form your society around around the expectation that those things happen, and also you form your society in order to support the people who those experiences are happening to, um, that makes for a far more robust and a far more uh, resilient society in the long run. And I think that's the exact opposite of what we do these days. <laughs> yeah. We form our society around um, the needs and the, the wants of those who have the most. Yeah. Rather than trying to say, OK, well, um, you know, we should be looking after um, those who have too little. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's a fully formed philosophy yet, but um, it's interesting. And I think being able to sit with um, discomfort and... Um, feelings, bad feelings, I think is, is, is a skill that we're all trying to learn and I think is a skill that is increasingly becoming something that's recognised as necessary.
0: Yeah. Um, what helped you get through that time well, you know, we, we've just talked about how hard it is when there's no way around it. It's like the, um, there's a kid's book that, <laughs> that um, I read to my kids which is going on a hunt. you know, can't go over it can't go under it mm-hmm. can't go through it it's mm-hmm. like that what did you do to help you sort of
1: through it? um i had i had three experiences in quick succession that were that, were, that all, all sort of that, they basically were massive turning points in my life um the first experience that i had was i mean i've always identified myself as an environmentalist um I'm not an environmentalist in the sense of being an environmental activist, but someone who thinks that the environment... The environment is not something that exists outside us. It's not something that... It's not a product. It it is the foundation of everything that we do. And if we don't look after that, then everything else falls apart. That seems to be a very simple truth to me. Um, To some people, that doesn't seem to be very obvious. We can talk about that later. Um, But I read an amazing... I read an amazing article by um, a British journalist named George Monbiot who writes for The Guardian in the UK and I've been reading his work for years sometimes I like what he writes sometimes I don't like what he writes Um, but he wrote this article in about April 2014 where he said that as the environmental movement if we had set out to deliberately alienate as many people as we could we couldn't have done better if we tried (laughs) (laughs) He said, and the reason is because for 40 years we have been preaching this narrative of doom and we've been saying the oceans are dying the forests are burning water wars are on the horizon we're on a collision course with a climate change time bomb we've got to do something about it and he said the problem with that fear based rhetoric is that it's a great way of getting people's attention but it is a terrible way of galvanizing people into action Because what it does is it it galvanises a very, very, very select fraction of people into doing something, but for the vast majority of us it just makes us go, oh my god, that sounds absolutely terrible, I'm going to retreat um, into my own protective shell and I'm going to protect what's mine, which is the exact opposite effect that you want it to have. And he said, what we should be doing as the environmental movement is we should be not, not, we shouldn't be naive, but we should be. We should be saying that this is possible. We can do this. He's, you know, preaching a message of, of optimism. Um, that just really struck home to me. Um, the second experience that I had was um, that uh, I had a. I had a. I went on a bike. I went on a bike trip with a, um, a whole bunch of my friends, and, and one of my friends, Tane, who's now my business partner, um, he started talking about. Science and technology, and, and some sort of, uh, and where science and technology was headed, and he had been reading a lot of this stuff. Um, he's a what's called a bioinformatician, which is someone who deals with big data in the biological realm, yeah. and he works in cancer research. So he's quite deeply embedded in that stuff. He's been interested in it for ages, and he was talking about the sort of um, really the idea that struck me most was this exponential um, increase in the rate of technological uh, progress. And that that is happening not just with computer chips, but it's happening across multiple industries and multiple types of technology at once. Yeah. And when you extrapolate that outwards, it kind of, you know, you, your head can start hurting a little bit. Yeah. And it was just one of those great conversations. I think we spoke for about two or three hours, one day on the bike ride, where you sort of go, oh my God, that could change everything." And then the final experience that I had was that um, I... I was doing a, quite a lot of journaling at the time, I thought that that might help, and I think I was sitting down one day and I was writing in the journal and I was saying, okay, well, what, what kind of person do I want to be? And, I have these two personalities which I kind of fight, that fight and, fight inside me. One I call um, one I call 1970s, um, 1970s Gus, <laughs> and the other one I call California Gus. <laughs> 1970s Gus is that sort of side of me that was raised in a really conservative background. I, I grew up in South Africa, very conservative um, socially and um, and sort of not very multicultural at all, um, very set expectations around what gender roles are, um, you know, what a good person is, etc. And that, that whole idea is that kind of, you know, stiff up a lip, get on with it, um, you know, it's it's quite rigid and it's and it's just old fashioned. It's the way that um a lot of uh, a lot of fathers from the boomer generation yeah tend to be. Um. Then the other side of me is is what I call California Gus, which is like ah, oh, there's all these amazing things happening. I want to be free. I want to be open-minded. I want to experience different things. Um, you know, strong views on gender gender equality, racial inequality. Um like a very strong set of progressive views and values and I feel like a lot of my life has been a, a tug of war between those two personality types um anyway so I wrote I, I wrote down these two columns in the um in my journal and on the left hand side I wrote all the things that I thought um, were expected of a successful and good person and the kind of words there were rational realistic um you know, takes both takes both sides into account. Um, is critical critical thinker um, doesn't get um, doesn't get carried away, not easily swayed. There's, there's a whole bunch of words there, and all those words were the ways that we've all been taught how to be since we were six years old at school. That's how they teach you to think. Yeah. It's called critical thinking. <laughs> like, you know. And they teach it to you in school, they teach it to you in high high school, and they teach it to you in university. And so we have been trained from a really early age to kind of have this moral equivalency when we're looking at issues. Um, And that objectivity is in there as well, which is that idea that you you look at the gaps in in an argument and you you try and figure out what it is. So that was what I wrote on the left-hand column. And then the right-hand column, I wrote a whole bunch of words, and the words were... Wildly optimistic, um, head in the clouds, um, you know, really enthusiastic, um, you know, sort of believes in idealism, um, is positive in the face of, you know, relentless negativity, like a whole bunch of words which all kind of were grouped the back like, California Gus kind of identity. And then I stopped and I looked at the two columns and I just had, it was like this, it was like my whole life suddenly just made sense. I was like... I have always been. I've spent my life trying to be that person on the left, and I just don't want to be that person. Like I'll be like, I'd like to be wildly optimistic, um, and, and I would like that to be a choice, and I want that to be a choice by which I can affect others around me, rather than being something that is a reaction to the world around me. Um, and I think those three things combined—that idea that you know we need to. We shouldn't be talking about fear. We should be talking about hope. The idea that technology and science uh, are some of the most powerful forces we have to create change, and the idea that optimism is a choice rather than a reaction, kind of all coalesce together and to, to put me on the path and I'm on now. When you had that realization you tried it on for size, did it just feel like liberation? Oh, totally liberating. Totally liberating. And. Yeah, it was, like, it was like this weight had been lifted from my shoulders yeah. that, that I had spent 24 years being told that I needed to think critically, be objective and then I was like, I don't have to do that anymore I can be subjective, I can be optimistic yeah. and, and it was like, okay, now, now I can do this but the great thing was that I didn't have to lose all those critical thinking skills so I could still use those but now I could use it in the service of a deliberate choice about the way that I was being. And that was just, I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the flow now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that that will not be the last revelation that I have. Yeah. Uh, but it was a very powerful set of experiences that definitely put me on the path that normally on now.
0: And it sounds like... It might be putting words in your mouth here, but it sounds like you went from a, an external framework of what success is to a very internal, this is what I feel success is for me, or this is the way, that, you know, success is a bit of a loaded term, but this is what living to my fullest is to me.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've really thought about it in terms of success. I think I've still got a bunch of stuff to work through on that one. Yeah. You know, I still think that that idea that success is tied to status and wealth I mean we can all sit here and say that we don't think that that's true but I think that that is so deeply embedded that it's very difficult to get rid of it's It's very difficult to get rid of um, and I have no doubt that many people are trying to not think like that but I, I still think that is a very difficult thing to overcome so I think for me this was less about this was less about success it was more about like it was more about what it means to be human and I think that My training in academia especially had taught me that the way to convince people is to be objective. Um, That you stand up, you say, here are these two sides of the argument. I have weighed up all the sides of the argument and I have concluded conclusively that this side of the argument is the correct one. Um, Whereas a subjective approach to life is saying, listen, I've had a bunch of experiences. Um, They these experiences have affected me in these ways. And because of those experiences, I now believe this. Mm. That second way of doing things, the problem with it is that half of your audience will go, well, I, I like I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't had those experiences, so I can't relate. And so you've lost them. But the other half of your audience, the people that you're speaking to, they go, yes, I've had that same experience. And they say, and so therefore... I, I, I think that your experience is valid and so I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. And as a way of convincing people or passing a message across or creating, you know, um, getting a point of view across, I think it's just a far more effective tool. Yeah. So,
0: optimism, wild optimism, um, unbelievable pace of
1: technological change. And... Um, just blanked out on the third one. So uh, the, no, <laughs> the third one is, is um, that idea that optimism is a choice. Yeah.
0: How did they? How are they manifesting now? Now, so you had the eighteen months of being
1: unemployed. Well, let, let, me, let me before I get into that, let me talk first about the word optimism. Sure. I think optimism is a loaded word. Um, most people associate optimism with naivety, whereas they, whereas they say you know you're being optimistic despite all the evidence pointing to the contrary. Um, I'm not interested in that kind of optimism. Um, And the the best way of explaining this is that... So the the, the optimism that I am interested in is is what I call conditional optimism. And the way of explaining it is that naive optimism is like a kid sitting around at Christmas waiting for presents. Whereas conditional optimism is like a kid who goes, all right, I'm going to go and build that treehouse with a whole bunch of wooden things and if I build it a whole bunch of other kids are going to come and it's going to be awesome yeah. and so that's the kind of that second optimism is the kind of optimism that I'm interested in one that has action behind it one that has action behind it it says listen here are a bunch of really amazing ways that people are doing things those things give us a reason to be optimistic they don't mean that we are ignoring all the other bad things that are happening um, they don't mean that we don't recognise there are still major challenges but look what we can do. Surely we can do more of this. And so that's the kind of optimism and the message that I'm, that I'm really interested in spreading. Yeah. It's, a, it's not a naive optimism. It's an intelligent and courageous optimism. And it's courageous because cynicism is easy. Because the thing with cynicism is you're never wrong <laughs> and, and you never have to admit any mistakes. Whereas optimism, you can be wrong. So you can be called out on that. But if, you, if, if the optimism is conditional, courageous, and intelligent, then I think it's the most powerful means we have for creating change. And I read your newsletter, Future Crunch, that's what
0: it's called, yeah? Um, it's one of the few that I read, and I recommend people sign up for it as well, it's awesome. And that really shines through, like I guess you have a couple of sections there, and one is, you know, good news that you might not have heard about, um, in particular, I guess, is that, that section that you're talking
1: about there, is that... I guess that's where that comes from. Yeah, that's where that comes from. But, I mean, you can't just talk about... You can't just um, spread good news and expect stuff to happen. I think the other thing about it is you also need to give people the means of doing something similar. Um, So, I mean, Future Crunch is... So, Future Crunch is my company. I run it with Tane, who I spoke about earlier. Um, And we describe ourselves as field guides for the new economy. And... Our mission is to sort of foster intelligent, optimistic thinking about the future, with the, with the goal of trying to change things for the better. Um, and so we do quite a lot of public speaking, um, we do a lot of advisory work, um, and we run this newsletter, which I think is probably our, our main means of getting our message out there. And the newsletter is divided into... The, the two sections that really matter is one section we call science fiction headlines, the other section we call good news you probably didn't hear about the science fiction headlines is the stuff where you're going holy shit the frontier of science and technology is way further out than any of us realise and what we do there is we profile scientific breakthroughs and new technologies that we think are good for the planet and so the criteria there is that those technologies have to make goods and services available to people that previously didn't have access to them that's the mark of a good technology Um, and when they do that they improve quality of life for everyone Um, that makes those technologies also inherently democratic an example of that is um, 3D printing uh, prosthetic limbs so for the vast majority of people in the world prosthetic limbs have never been possible because they're far too expensive Uh, and especially for kids if if a kid breaks them or inevitably outgrows them then, then the, thats it. Yeah. You can't replace it. So it's only prosthetic limbs used to cost 40000 dollars. So they were available for the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. But now, thanks to 3D printing, you can download a schematic from an open-source website that can give you a, a prosthetic that gives you instructions on how to print a prosthetic limb, and that means—and then you can use a 3D scanning tool to scan the place where that prosthetic limb needs to be fitted. And that means that you can now print a prosthetic limb for a kid in, in Sudan for 10 or $15 worth of plastic material. And when the kid inevitably breaks it or outgrows it, you can then take the plastic materials, you can recycle them, and you can print the kid a new one. Now, that is the power of really good technology. It's democratic, it's cheap, and it means that hundreds of thousands of people around the world who, never, who could never have prosthetic limbs now have access to them for an order of magnitude cheaper cost than they did before. And we see that pattern playing out in so many different areas of technology at like renewable energy, genetics, healthcare, mobile phones, banking. Um, I mean, it's just sort of, it's just, it's everywhere. Um, and that's really exciting to us in the future. Change. So that's the first section of science tech. And the good news that you didn't hear about is um, our little attempt to kind of correct what we see as. It's it's terrible media bias to focus on the negative. Um, We we think that the media has a commercial logic that's predicated on fear and inaccurate perceptions of risk because that's what people click on, because that's what we're evolutionarily trained to do, which is great when you're running away from a tiger, but it's not so good when you're living in a world that's safer and um, more peaceful than ever. Um, And so the vast majority of our news and reporting that we get these days um, comes in the form of bad news or news that is potentially scary Um, and our future crunch newsletter is a little attempt to dig up the good news stories from around the world um, and give them a bit of airtime as well and they're bloody hard to find (laughs) not because they're not happening but because the media doesn't report on them yeah so you have to really dig you have to dig and, and we always find plenty but there's so much amazing stuff happening out there you know People are, there are hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are furiously working right now to make the world cleaner, fairer, more, more peaceful and more abundant for every human being on the planet. And their stories just don't get shared. They're not, those stories are not interesting to mainstream media because they don't generate clicks. And so they don't, we, we don't hear about them. Yeah. But there are so many examples. And every time I read one of those examples, it gives me hope for the future
0: got a few things I want to ask about this stuff and one of them is like I don't know about this so it's, I guess it's a really open question but how how do we make sure that that the stuff you're talking about like all these technological improvements how do we make sure that 3D printing does make the world more democratic and does get to the people that are most in need and isn't concentrated in the hands of the powerful and the few uh, extrapolate I guess the structures that are already in place.
1: Yeah, this is the uh, trillion-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what we've seen, especially with um, the digital revolution, is we've seen you know a few hundred socially anxious people from Silicon Valley invent a whole bunch of stuff, and they've brought a lot of incredible benefits to the world, but it's also made them a shitload of money in the process. Um, the problem with this is not just technological evolution. This is, this is, this is sort of any, any new economic process. What it, what it tends to do is, especially when you have free markets, which is digital technologies that kind of drop themselves into what is effectively an unregulated free market, which is the Internet. Um, and markets tend towards inequality. That's just the nature of the free market. That's what it does. The gains accrue to the few after, after a certain period of time. Um, in the early days of a, tech, of a new technological wave It's kind of like the wild west Everyone's out there And then eventually you have a few big players Who eventually end up dominating And then all the game They kind of like suck all the oxygen out the room And, and, and end up holding it all for themselves um, We've seen that happen with the digital revolution And as we start seeing the technological revolution now Enter things like 3D printing, renewables um, Genetics uh, Robotics artificial intelligence, We will. the danger is that we see the same pattern play out again. And this is where it comes back to that political economy stuff that I, that I studied. This is where regulation is so important and where governance really matters. And I think this is the one big thing that a lot of the techno-utopians really missed. is that you'll hear a lot of talk in these circles about how technology is going to save the world and it's all going to be amazing and everyone's going to have a supercomputer in their pocket and a virtual reality headset and there will be no more disease and, you know, it's this real techno-utopian view of the world. Um, I don't subscribe to that view for the simple reason that techno-utopianism never takes governance and politics into account. And what what technology does is it makes... It opens up new channels of possibility. It means that we suddenly... Be, um, we suddenly have new paths that might for example end up with the end of fossil fuels or end up at the end of war but we can't get onto those paths unless we have um, really strong social movements for change unless we have really good rules and regulations that protect the weak against the predations of the powerful and if we don't have elected leaders that are willing to take risks and put themselves out there and so i think without that kind of governance and politics side of things all these amazing technological um, changes that we're seeing—they're um, they're not going to reach the masses. Yeah. And I think that's—that's that's what's really worrying. That isn't happening, or it might not happen. It's—it's oh, it's all complicated, you know. So in some areas, so what's really interesting, for example, is that in the artificial intelligence area, there's a really strong cultural movement with the, amongst technologists to say this should all be open source. No one should own this. It's too important. Yeah. Um, the flip side of that, for example, might be virtual reality where you have all the big players are, are furiously trying to make sure that they become the next VR platform of choice because once you've got the VR once you've locked people into your VR platform it means you have complete control over what happens inside that environment. And and that means that you can suck up all the games because of that. And so certain technologies lend themselves to open source a lot better than, than others. Um, and especially when you're talking about hardware development, which is what happens with virtual reality, um it becomes a lot harder to distribute those gains equally. Yeah. And I think that, again, that's where governments come in. Yeah. You know, so do you have a governance process in play? Do, you know, do you have different governments thinking about how we're going to regulate a, a completely digital environment and a completely virtual virtual environment? Um, what, are, what are companies allowed to do and what are they not allowed to do? What data are they allowed to track? What are they not allowed to track? Um, and unfortunately, most governments are just hope, like, these, most governments are dealing with questions of, you know, they're still trying to figure out how to regulate Uber. Yeah, yeah. Um, what happens when you, within five years, when you have um, almost everyone transitioning in their devices into a mix of either augmented reality, virtual reality, or both, um, you have a complete revolution in the computers and the tools that we use, and now suddenly you have a billion or two billion people around the world who are a captive audience to to Oculus or to Samsung. Um, how are governments going to regulate that? I mean, those conversations need to start happening now, but they're, yeah. they're not even close. They'll be in retrospect. And that's yeah. the problem. Is if you're playing catch-up with the technology companies, it becomes much more difficult to regulate that space. The second question
0: I had was about, which ties into what you were talking about, the environment, actually. And one of the, I guess one of the key learnings even just recently I'm reading a couple of great books at the moment one's called Sapiens
1: which is just it's uh, um what's uh, Yuri Uh, Harari Harari yep
0: yep the other one's called Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs and I think it's just for me it's just giving me a much richer understanding of the context within which I live right now in terms of time place evolution universe and I mean, one of the big things is what you talked about earlier. Just, yeah, I feel this, I feel this growing connection to the environment, and how I can't, I don't, I can't understand myself without it, really, as a human, and I need it. But it, to me, it feels like a whole lot of the technological change that's happening is going to take me further and further away from that. Like you talked about augmented reality. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else, but it, you know, I have a look at our cities, and I, you know, I, I to see dirt here in front of us is almost like, what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, and it, even in office buildings, you know, everything's very rectangular and um, and linear, and the plants look artificial, even if they're not. Okay. is there a, like where is it all going? Is our as humans are we going to become more and more divorced from our environment, or do you see? Is there a way that this change in technology can help us, I guess, re-embrace and become
1: closer and more integrated again? Um, it's, a, it's a really complicated question. Um, let, me, let me see if I can answer this in three parts. Um, and cut me off if I'm going on for too long. Yeah. Like I understand my answers are quite long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first is, kind of how did we get into this mess? Right? And this is the simplest way of thinking about it. When, when the industrial revolution at the beginning of this 100 years ago, when we were sort of right in the middle of the throes of the industrial revolution, we had one billion people on the planet. We had a lot of resources, lots of nature, lots of resources, and so that meant that all of our inte- our collective intelligence turned towards how do we maximize um, how do we maximize our ability to take resources from the environment with as little labor as possible. So you had these massive machines being invented. You had, you know, um, gears and cogs, and, and what you wanted to do is you, you wanted to have an increase in the ability of uh, the ability of machines to do the labour that people could do, because you didn't have many people, yeah. and that's really that that that's really been the history of that. That was the first. That was the last sort of. That was the last. That was the industrial revolution. The problem, as a result of the gains, it meant that more and more people. We got more and more and more people, but we got. Increasingly fewer and fewer resources, and so we're now at the point where we have seven billion people on more than seven billion people on the planet, but that resource base has shrunk considerably. So not only do we have more people, do we have more people chasing resources, but we've got fewer resources to distribute around, which is why environmental concerns are now such a such a big issue. And of course, the banner issue there is climate change. Um, so that's kind of how we got into the mess. The other big factor here is that. Um, human beings are now predominantly urban species so I think in 2011 uh, more than 50% of the planet we've crossed the halfway mark we now have more than half the planet who live in cities by 2050 70% of the planet will be living in cities now that is actually really good news for the planet because cities are far more efficient at distributing resources than people people who live in cities distribute resources and have less impact on the planet than people who don't live in cities um so as we become an increasingly predominant urban species, that idea of connection to nature, I think it I think it's going to become increasingly rare, but it's also going to become increasingly sought after. And I think where we're going with this is that we are going to start seeing more and more people appreciating nature but probably spending less and less time in nature. Mm. Um the flip side of that is that hopefully as a result we're going to see much better conservation practices because we're going to have less impact on the land. And by the way, people will talk about population growth. Population growth is not an issue. You hear it's a really popular thing in environmental circles. The issue is not that we have too many people on the planet, the issue is that we don't distribute our resources very effectively. Um, and if we can figure out ways of distributing our resources better, of living with less impact on the planet through living in smart cities with sustainable types of agriculture Um, if we can figure out better ways of getting energy from renewable sources and we can concentrate all those gains in cities which uh, in using systems that use things better and also inventing new systems of regulation and governance, then I think that we could get to a planet by 2050 where we have 10 billion people 70% of them are living in cities most of them want to have a connection to nature and they're able to go out and access more nature because we have more nature that's being concerned yeah okay um, that is I think that is very I think that is very possible whether we actually get there or not is really kind of the big that, that's where we're at right now yeah um, and Joanna Macy who's one of my favourite environmental philosophers she calls it kind of she says we're at this point in history where it's either the great unraveling or it's the great turning <laughs> and it's one of the two like this is a pivotal point in our species history and the decisions that we make now are going to affect hundreds of generations going forward in the future and I think that's why it's such an exciting time to be alive but also why it's such an important time for every single person to be part of this conversation and to be doing something to make it the great turning rather than the great unraveling So tie it back
0: to what we are saying about crisis, or crises as well is a... Uh, I mean, do you think that we need to have some kind of crisis as a, as a country before we get it? And is there a way, if that's the case, is there a way of managing it so the crisis isn't catastrophic?
1: We, we are already in the crisis. Yeah. July was the hottest month ever since, well, not ever, but since records began in 1880. We have never, the planet has never experienced a month as hot as July. I mean, that is unbelievable. It is, but, but I mean, we're not feeling it. Do you know what
0: I mean? No, like people aren't feeling. It. Just
1: because you're not feeling the crisis doesn't mean the crisis isn't happening.
0: Yeah, I guess what I'm saying then is, how do we need to feel the crisis before we take action, or
1: will Possibly, we? Possibly. Um, I I would like to think that we don't need to. Uh, we don't need for it all to come crumbling down before we take action. Um, the other, remember the. So the crisis is happening. We we are in the middle of. You know, global inequality is is huge. We are seeing forced migration at levels we've never seen before we've just experienced the hottest month um, we've ever seen Um, hundreds, you know, there are there are all these things that are starting to, you know, the beginnings of the great unravelling, all the ingredients are there but at the same time, all the ingredients for the beginning of the great turning are there as well (laughs) Um, renewable energy is growing exponentially Um, we're starting to see we've seen more than 3 billion people connected to the greatest information resource humanity has ever known in the last 10 years Uh, war is is at its lowest ebb ever and violence is coming down in most parts of the world murder rates have come down in 66 out of the 82 countries for which data is available in the last decade Um, we're starting to see the evolution of new digital technologies like blockchain which have the promise to have the potential to create newer and more fairer systems of distribution so all it just depends on which one you you want to be part of all the elements for the great turning are there all the elements for the great unraveling are there and now it's about which one of those things we want to emphasise and which one of those things we want to boost. Um, so, and all the people who are creating and are part of the Great Turning, they have started doing those things without having to have necessarily experienced crisis. They've sat, they've looked at it, they've gone, right, we've got a we've got an issue on our hands here. Yeah? yeah. So they haven't had to, they haven't, you know, we haven't had to all live in dystopias in order to turn it around yet. Um, so I don't think that we need to experience. An art and art dissolution of society, and you know, um, a massive tidal wave that swamps, or I don't know, sea level rise that takes out half of Sydney, or yeah. something like that. Before we take action, I think people already are taking action. Yeah. It's just that we don't hear their stories that often. Yeah, it's like the silent, ma- silent majority. <laughs> yeah. But the silent majority usually applies to right wing politics. But there's also a silent majority of people who have kind of looked at the way everything's going, um, and they're looking at some of the stuff that politicians do, which would make other people froth with indignation, and they're like, oh, well, what do you expect? And then they just go off and start doing something to make it better, rather than going, oh, the terrible politicians, are so bad, and they say, all right, fuck it, I'm going to go make something that's better. Yeah. And so, is that
0: what you're doing, essentially, in the work that Future Crunch does? Aside from the newsletter, I think you go into corporates and start to talk about this stuff to prepare them for what's coming
1: yeah so so we will speak to anyone i mean we go into corporates because they'll pay us money which allows us to sustain ourselves and means that we can you know make a living we're never going to get rich from it but you know we need something to keep it keep it alive um but we'll go speak to schools we'll speak to non-profits we speak at conferences um i mean we'll yeah we'll speak to anyone um, and the idea is that there's this message, that there are, we want to get this message that there are lots of other people out there making this thing happen, um, and that it's time to, you know, it's time to get going. Yeah. Um, and we want to give people stories about what other people are doing around the world to give them the sense that it can be done, but then we also want to show them that there are all these new emerging technologies and tools that we have that allow us to actually get that stuff done. You know, it's all very well talking about climate change, but if we don't have good renewable technologies in order to transition to a new type of, t- of energy system, then no amount of governance or rules is ever going to solve it. Yeah. I've got a couple of
0: questions as we wrap up. The first one... is are two questions that I always ask people. The first one, I don't know if it's that relevant to you, so I might tweak it a little bit. It's <laughs> only about, you know, what's a... What's a disruption that you'd like to be part of one day that you daydream about being part of one
1: day? But you, you, do you have an answer for that question? Oh, totally. Okay, cool. Um, if I was going to hitch my wagon to any new emerging technology, it would, would be blockchain. Tell us about that. Oh, so,
0: so, yeah, some people may not know what blockchain is, but we might need a quick...
1: Yeah, so a blockchain is basically a system of people who all agree to be a part of one group, it's an online, it's a digital system, and that group then, um, they all, they lodge transactions within, they, they lodge transactions with each other, and everyone who's part of that system also keeps a record of all of those transactions. And then there's also a certain amount of the participants in that system who then verify blocks of those transactions in order to make sure that they're all, that they're all Okay. And that's where the name comes from, a blockchain. Because once you have a, a string of blocks all put together, then, then it, that links it all up. Um, and blockchain, in other words, so it's, it's the world's first digital tamper-proof... And because, I'm sorry, because everyone keeps a copy of all the transactions, no individual or group of individuals can tamper with the transactions. So it's the world's first digital tamper-proof public ledger. And the reason that it matters is that, that it lets two people engage in a transaction without needing a third party guarantor. So another way of thinking about this in an even more simple way is that blockchain is kind of like um, it's like email for money. So in the same way that when email came along, it meant that you no longer had to go to the post office to send somebody a message because the post office was your third party. Yeah. Blockchain means that you can now send someone value, or you can engage in transactions without needing a third party in order to say this transaction is okay. Yeah. And blockchain can be used not just for money, but it can be used for any kind of transaction. So I can use it to denote ownership. I can use it to denote whether something has moved from one place to another place. Um, I can use it to denote whether I've voted on something. So it's applicable across a complete... A, a huge range of human activities in the modern economy um, and right now it's still kind of in its early days it's like, the, it's like where the internet was in the sort of early 90s um, we're still at the point where when each company gets a blockchain it's still news um, and that's what used to happen in like up until about 98 they'd be like oh General Electric's got a website now <laughs> or, oh now, um, you know, now uh, Exxon has got a website or now the government's got a website and we're still kind of seeing that with blockchain. We're like, oh, okay, now ANZ is investing in blockchain. Okay, uh, now the British government, the Bank of England, is into blockchain. So it's, it's kind of at that point. Um, but once blockchain really gets up and running, um, I think it's just, I mean, it, it impacts every single aspect of what we do. Um, not just finance, law, um, legal, like voting and governance, um, the insurance industry um it impacts trade but um, I think that sort of being involved in that space and I'm kind of hitching my wagon to that I think is I think it's going to be huge. And what is the main thing it does is it re- the reduction of friction and and middle the middle party it means that you have far more efficient distribution you have less paper you have um, it's it's um, it means you don't have third parties in order to. Verify transactions, and there is an entire global economy that's been built up around that. Um, think, for example, I mean, think of what a property agent is. Yeah.
0: You
1: know, um, yeah. and also the entire, the, then on top of property, there's an entire industry of people who are there just to exchange pieces of paper between everyone to make sure that yeah. everyone's got, you know, blockchain wipes all of that completely out. You know, coming back to this idea of, you know, Mark Andreessen's famous uh, uh, um, maxim that software is eating the world. Blockchain, I mean eats anything that requires a transaction. and if you think about a market economy, market economy is just an entire system of transactions. So as soon as you have blockchain systems that start to dis away at that, you're talking about disruption on a scale that makes the internet look like child's brain. And it's a world where everyone has got a small mini com- small, small computer in their p- supercomputer in their pocket, and where everyone is connected all the time. So, the infrastructure for, some, for a digital technology like blockchain to happen is now in place. Um, and I think when it's, once it starts getting going, it's going to shake the world. Yeah. Not to mention banks. <laughs> so, the banks are furiously investing in blockchain. But what's really interesting about blockchain at the moment is that, in a similar way, this is another um, sort of parallel to where the internet was. In the early days of the internet, you had um, intranets and you had internet, the internet. Yeah. And intranets were private, effectively private internets that happened within companies or within groups of companies, um, where this, they used the same systems and technologies as the public internet. Yeah. And there, there was a while where people didn't know whether it was going to be the public internet or the private intranets that were going to prevail. And of course, the public internet prevailed because you've got more input and you've got it's just got more use cases, right? You've got network effects that aren't available inside. Private intranets. Yeah. Blockchain's in a similar place. We've got public blockchains like Ethereum um, and also Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, got, is its own, effectively, blockchain used for exchanging digital currencies. Ethereum is the new kid in the block, and that's the big one to watch um, because they've built a blockchain that allows you to effectively create your own programming language on top of it. That means you can use it for any kind of an application. Yeah. Um, a consortium called the R3 consortium that's trying to establish their own private internal blockchain between 40 of them so they can all exchange value um, I think there's another project called the Hyperledger project um, which is being run by, it's an open source project but I think IBM's involved in that they're also trying to create a blockchain so everyone's kind of going at it, they want to be the creators of the main blockchain that everyone uses um, but I think ultimately so a project like Ethereum or, or Bitcoin Maybe it won't be one of those two, maybe it'll be something else, but I think a a completely public blockchain system is going to be the way that um, things eventually go. And the banks are piling into blockchain like lemmings. They are so scared because they know it completely eliminates, it it destroys their business model. And that's a business model that's 500 years old. So they're all investing furiously in it, they're trying to hire blockchain experts. Um, And I think some of the banks are going to make it, but I think some of them aren't. And I think it's just a really interesting... Um, an exciting time to be in that kind of finance uh, sector and watch what happens yeah it's really cool Mm.
0: the last question is about um, yourself actually so it's you know this podcast is called Subtle Disruptors and I want to understand if there's something small or something subtle that you've changed in your own life that you know enabled you to be where you are today or something that sustains you on your journey today that would be interesting for other people to about potentially apply as well
1: um I I think probably the most important subtle disruption that I've done on myself in the last year has been um opening myself up to new views of, to new world models that I've Was previously not really open to. Um, I think that since the age of about 16 or 17, I've had a very strict, very deterministic, rationalistic, atheistic, mechanistic view of the way the world is. Um, And that has served me great, um, you know, based on science, logic. um, And in the last year, I've sort of said, okay, well, instead of being just saying, right? That's my world model, done and dusted. I've formed my worldview at the age of sixteen, and now it doesn't change. Yeah. Um, going, all right. I'm 33 years old. Maybe it's time for a kind of a look at the way things work, and trying to be open to new perspectives and new and alternative points of view. Um, one of the best things I've done, for example, is I've started listening to. I've been listening to a podcast called On Being for the last year, two year and a half. Um, that features a lot of interviews with religious people, Catholic monks or Buddhist. Um, you know, uh, Buddhist uh, practitioners or um, people who traditionally I wouldn't have listened to because I would have said, "Oh, well, if they're religious, they don't know what's going on." Um, and trying to listen to perspectives from people that I wouldn't normally listen to um, to say, "Okay, well, what's their worldview?" Um, I've been reading a lot of right-wing, um, a lot of uh, a lot of blogs and news sites that I don't normally conform to my worldview in order to try and understand how people think that way as well. Um, and trying to trying to think about the world from different perspectives and then challenge my own view of it and say okay well how do I know the things that I know why do I believe the things that I believe mm. and I think that that's going to be a lifelong journey now In sort of saying and that's, that's a scientific approach and that's why science is so awesome <laughs> because the scientific approach says um, I make a decision based on the best evidence available to me, but if new evidence becomes available that forces me to revisit that decision, then I am obliged to revisit it. Yeah. And that can apply to, not just to an experiment, but that can apply to a worldview, or it can apply to a friendship, or it can apply to a career, or it can apply to um, you know, a voting pattern that you have. And I think trying to be so it's weird by being more scientific in my life I'm exposing myself to non-scientific points of view yeah and I, and I find that really quite um, quite unsettling but it's also been really valuable
0: yeah
1: and do you find it easy to do you find do you feel sometimes attached to your
0: worldview and it's hard oh, to let go of it if new evidence a, does come
1: totally up? yeah I mean it's really interesting that you say that I, I mean that's what I I've been wrestling with this question this week where I've had a few experiences where, which have made me kind of doubt some of the things that I maybe believed before um, quite deeply held beliefs about the way the world works and the process of going okay I think I'm going to let that go you, 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 there's, there's a part of you that goes no, <laughs> no I'm not doing it and it's actually quite painful to let those points of view go so the work, that kind of work is actually very difficult um, and it's uncomfortable and it makes you feel exposed it makes you feel uncertain um, uncertainty is a difficult place to be in especially when you're um, slightly neurotic you know person who tends to think too much in their head and um, is trying to you know subtly change the, you know disrupt the way people think yeah um, like if I'm not certain then how can I sit there and have a newsletter that tells people the way things are <laughs> yeah um, but I think I'm trying to learn to sit with uncertainty a bit more and, and just be a bit more comfortable because no one's certain, right? Ultimately. That's right. It's, the world's just far too complicated. Yes,
0: yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for yeah. sharing your journey. Really appreciate that. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own Subtle Disruption. Bye for now.